You can't change what you can't name. And the reason I love the Enneagram so much is because it names the things you already know, but you have not been able to articulate about yourself. And once you can articulate them, you can do something about it. Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. You are in for a treat today. I've been a fan of my guest, Suzanne Stabile, for many years now, and I can't really believe that I had a chance to interview her about her new book. So her book is called The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation, and it releases today. Thanks to the generosity of InterVarsity Press, we are get to give away a copy of this book. So if you want to uh, find out about the giveaway, head over to Instagram this morning. My handle over there is Amy Julia Becker, and you can enter to win a copy of The Journey Towards Wholeness. You'll get all of those uh, details there, or you can also look at the show notes. So Suzanne is a teacher of the Enneagram, and if you don't know what that is, I have asked her uh, on the show to explain it in kind of, you know, cliff note form. And also we get to talk about why it matters, how it can be helpful to us in understanding ourselves and the people around us. Suzanne's books and lectures have all been really helpful to me, not just in my own spiritual and personal growth, but also in experiencing healing these past few years. So I really do um, recommend listening to this, but also checking out the show notes for links to her other resources. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Well, it is my honor to be here today talking with Suzanne Stabile. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I um, love to talk to folks and I love to talk about the Enneagram. So it's a joy for me. Well, you have come to the right place. Uh, I am someone who has followed your work for many years. I've listened to you teach. I've read your books. Um, In my mind, you need no introduction because I've spent a lot of time with you, even though you've spent no time with me. <laughs> so I'm That's grateful. Right. I'm grateful for that. Um, that said, I'm sure that there are listeners to this podcast who are not familiar with you and perhaps not familiar with the Enneagram, which is your subject matter. And I want to talk today about your most recent book, The Journey Towards Wholeness. But before we get into the nitty gritty, the details of that book, I'm wondering if you can give us a big picture view. What is the Enneagram? Why does it matter? Why have you spent decades of your life uh, bringing this truth and wisdom into the world? Um, Well, the Enneagram is essentially about nine ways of seeing. And um, when I teach a initial workshop, which is all nine numbers, I teach each one for about 30 or 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I say to people when I start the day that I I'm not sure they'll know their number when they leave. Generally, people do, but not 100% of the time. What I am sure of is that they'll be more compassionate. Mm. The Enneagram is probably 3,000 years old, maybe older. Um, And it was an oral tradition in every faith belief on the globe uh, until the 1970s when um, Americans started to publish Hmm. Enneagram wisdom and Enneagram work. And I have been uh, studying for 30 years and teaching for 26, but uh, it's only been trendy in the last three or four. Hmm. And there are two sides to that, which I can address later. 
if uh, more is needed. But I would just say that this is an unending wisdom tool Mm -hmm. that has layer upon layer upon layer. And to know your number is kind of like buying a ticket Hmm. to get in. And then all the work starts. And unfortunately, with its trendiness, uh, there are shortcuts to knowing your number, which often means you don't really know your number. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything stops there, which makes it so much less than it is. And yet it offers an awareness that there are nine different ways of seeing the world and your way isn't everybody else's. And that's the primary cause, I think, of all the disconnects that keep us dividing and circling the wagons and thinking we're right and everybody else is wrong, all that. Um, I teach primarily in uh, universities and churches and hospitals. My husband, Joe, and I have our own ministry. He's a Methodist pastor, but we all have a nonprofit and I teach out of our nonprofit. And um, I think um, I've gotten more mail during COVID than at other times, although I get a lot mm. that said, thank you so much. This made everything mm. easier because people learn how to uh, more than tolerate one another, but make room for one another and make room for difference as they begin to learn and know and wonder and be curious about the Enneagram and about people who see differently than they do. Mm. So interesting to hear you say that because in 2019, a couple months before COVID, so December of 2019, my husband and I, um, our family was on a sabbatical road trip and we listened to your Know Your Number workshop. So we both had done, we both had read both um, your The Road Back to You and the path between uh-huh, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we had read both of those books, but I was like, you know, I've listened to her too. And I really like the way she talks. So we listened to know your, the know your number series over the course of that road trip. And it did set us up well for COVID, both in terms of understanding each other, but we also, I think have both felt that um, understanding again, whether or not we actually know exactly what number someone else is, knowing these different ways to see the world and that there Mm -hmm. are these strengths and weaknesses and particular hardships and gifts that come within each of them has been really, really helpful for us. So I will make sure we include in the show notes links to both of those books, as well as Mm -hmm. to that audio teaching, which again, it's it's maybe three hours, but it's well worth it. Um, and was a really great conversation and understanding, I guess, empathy, compassion tool for us as a married couple and in thinking about other people's in our other people in our lives. Um, But today, I do want to kind of hone in on this new book that you have, The Journey Towards Wholeness, and the subtitles, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. And what I loved about this book is that you are doing this work that actually Although you're talking about individual numbers, it also groups these different numbers together 
and talks about what they have in common, which has been, again, really helpful for me in recognizing, oh, that's why I have this in common with this other person, even though we're not the same number. I've, I've really appreciated that. And one of the things you write about is different centers of intelligence, thinking, doing, and feeling. So I thought maybe we could start there. What does it mean to approach the world through these different centers of intelligence? How does it help us to know and understand these centers of intelligence? Could you just talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, In the 1940s and 1950s, uh, there was a man, uh, a scholar in England who wrote a paper. He suggested that there are really only three centers of intelligence. His name was Maurice Nicole. And he said that um, the three centers of intelligence are thinking, feeling, and doing. And he then went on to say that we all respond to stimulus from the world first with one of the three, either with what do I think, what do I feel, or what am I going to do? And at the same time, um, the modern Enneagram was surfacing and people were beginning to talk about it some in Europe. And another person whose name is Karen Horney, Dr. Karen Horney, Uh, A German-American also wrote a paper during that time suggesting that we either move toward people or away from people or against other people. Mm. If you take the Enneagram and you lay Maurice Nicole's work right on top of that, then what you end up with is three numbers side by side that approach the world first with what do I feel and three numbers side by side that, uh, receive stimulus and their first question is, what am I going to do? And the other three, what do I think? So to lay one piece of wisdom on top of another and have it fit in that way is pretty astonishing. Right. Then if you lay Karen Horney's work on top of that, what they found is that in each of those groups of three, One number moves toward people, one number moves away from people, and one number moves against people. And I've changed the language moves moves against to stands independently Mm -hmm. because I think that's more of what happens in those numbers. So twos, threes, and fours on the Enneagram are feeling dominant. Five, sixes, and sevens are thinking dominant, and eight, nines, and ones are doing dominant. And they make up the triads of the Enneagram. And within those triads, there are different ways of uh, stacking, feeling, thinking, and doing, but they stack according to which one is dominant and which one is repressed. And you kind of have to learn to manage your dominant center before you can achieve any balance in your life. And this book is all about balance. Right. The Road Back to You is to help you. It's a primer so that you can know your number. The thing that comes right after that for people is what am I going to do with it? And the first place to apply it is in relationships. And that's the path between us. After you've done that, this is spiritual wisdom. So my third question for myself came to be, okay, what is wisdom then? If, If the road back to you is information and the path between us is knowledge, in terms of how to apply that, then where does wisdom come? Mm -hmm. And it comes in doing our own work and in our relationship to our uh, understanding of the Holy One or of 
whomever or whatever is bigger than we are, right? And I think um, that there's one more piece that I may add later if I am smart enough, long enough to do it. But this third piece is where the greatest value lies because you can't change what you can't name. And if you don't understand how these centers of intelligence operate within you, then you don't know what to do about them. So I walk into a room as an Enneagram two, and I feel everybody else's feelings. Mm -hmm. I know who needs what. And my next response after feeling is to do something about what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. But thinking comes last for me. And it doesn't mean that I'm not smarter, that I can't think like, you know, I, I have degrees and I've written books like I'm smart enough, but I don't think productively because in my feeling dominance, I'm relationship centered. And so a great deal of my thinking is about relationships. Uh, An aside is the path between us was easier to write Mm. than this book or than the road because it's about relationships and that's my thing. So that was an easier uh, world for me to live in Mm -hmm. for a year to do that work. And so this third book is about doing personal work that helps you manage your dominant center, bring up your repressed center. And then try to level out using each of the three centers for its intended purpose. So in other words, all of us have all three types of intelligence. One is dominant. One is repressed. One's kind of in the middle. But also, I've heard you say this, and this was in your book, and I've experienced this as I kind of try to apply it in my own life, that on first viewing, many of us might say, well, no, that's not me. So, yeah. f- for example, I mean, you, I know, I've heard you say that you were like, wait a second, I think all the time. What do you mean that that's repressed, Ex- right? Exactly. And I'm an Enneagram one. And similarly, I'm like, people call me a thinker. Like, that's how people know me is as a thinker. And so it took a long time for me to be like, wait, what would that mean that my thinking is unproductive? That my thinking mm-hmm. actually often gets in my way because of my inner critic and um, the fact that I, yes, I can get very much sidelined by thinking. Um, At the same time, one of the things, and you've you've spoken to this a little bit, but I want to ask a little bit more. You said that we all kind of respond to stimuli or take in information through these dominant centers. So in my case, that would be with doing. What can you think of an example of a situation where like three different numbers would take in the information as like doing, feeling and thinking? Sure. Okay. So I want to add another uh, descriptive word to each of the three triads. So two, three, four triad is the feeling triad or the emotionally centered triad or the relationship triad or the heart triad. It's referred to as all of those things, but they're all pretty much the same. Five, six, seven uh, is referred to as the thinking triad or the head triad, but they're also referred to as the fear triad. Mm. Eights, nines, and ones are the doing triad, but they're also referred to as the gut triad, but they're also referred to as the anger triad. So you, 
you have a lot happening then with what do I think and what do I feel and what needs to be done. And um, if we took the 891, let's just use yours. Just for fun. (laughs) Let's use yours. So uh, you are thinking dominant, but let's talk about what you think about. Then I'll talk about you being in a dependent stance, which is the next step. Okay. So eight nines and ones, ones see everything that is wrong. That's how you see. Mm -hmm. So when you walk into a room, you know, what isn't where it should be. You know, the photographs that are hanging crooked, you know, you see all of those things and you feel compelled to do something about them. And so you, you, you are a doer, but you have feelings about what you do. So you have to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. Nines, which are right next to you, are both doing dominant and doing repressed. The core numbers on the Enneagram are dominant and repressed in the same center. So what that means is my husband, Joe's a nine. That means he walks into a room and he sees the things that need to be done. but he thinks somebody ought to do that. You think I ought to do that. If I want it done correctly, I should do it. Eights are doing dominant and they walk into a room and see what needs to be done. And they do what will affect the reason they came into the room. Hmm. So if they're going to speak, they might straighten the photograph behind them. Hmm. If not, they care. They do what will affect their purpose for being there. And they get a lot done. Hmm. So eights do, and they do quickly and fast. They think and do or do and think, but they don't have any feelings involved in that. Nines, see what needs to be done. Think somebody should do it. They do something all the time, but only sometimes is it what needs to be done. Mm And ones are going to do correctly and thoroughly whatever they do, which means they're limited in how much they can address of what they see because it has to be done right and correctly. And so bringing thinking into that, just to use the one as the example, because I can do that easily since that's who I am, would mean before you just start doing everything that needs to be done and doing it correctly, stop and think about what that what those consequences would be how important it really is that the photograph be straight etc etc and then make some decisions about what you're going to do so it's not that doing is bad it's just that if you're not involving thinking in what you're doing you're going to end up um, doing a lot of things that might not need to get done or not need to get done correctly right now that's right. And so we got to move around to um, stances, which are determined by which is repressed. Right. So if we're going to talk about being thinking repressed, then we're talking about the dependent stance. Mm-hmm. And you and I are together there right. along with sixes. And we are uh, dominant in something else. And thinking repressed. So for you to be thinking repressed, that means that you spend a lot of time conversing with your inner critic Mm -hmm. and you count that as thinking. Right. Feels like thinking to you, but it isn't. 
It's not thinking and it's not thinking productively. Mm -hmm. And the critic is never giving you compliments. So you for sure are not um, feeling good about yourself as you're trying to think through what you're going to do. I think all the time is a two, but 80 to 85% of my thinking is about relationships. Mm -hmm. And there are many other things that need to be thought about. I need to think about where I'm supposed to be. I need to think about what I'm going to teach this weekend. I need Mm. to think about travel. I need to think about next month. I need to think like, and I'm just thinking relationships all day. That's where my world is. Mm -hmm. So I have to work to, to think more productively. Sixes are in the fear triad. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking dominant, but they're also thinking repressed. And what they do is they read the world through a lens of uh, life's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful, uh, there's trouble waiting everywhere. And people have hidden agendas and you better be ready for that. And so six is out of their fear. Anxiety is a better word because they're concerned about possible future events. So what sixes are doing with their thinking uh, opportunities is preparing for the worst thing that could possibly happen. Unfortunately, that's a waste of time most of the time Mm -hmm. because worst case scenario planning is planning for things that generally don't come to fruition. So in Enneagram world, what you want to do is bring up what's repressed, not push down what's dominant. But you have to be able to manage what's dominant in order to bring up what's repressed. So I can't manage my feelings. I can't bring up thinking because feelings are just too big for me. Yeah. If you can't manage your doing, yeah. then you can't bring up thinking. Yeah. So the journey is how do we look at the triad that we belong to head, heart, gut, our thinking, feeling, doing, mm-hmm. and learn to discipline ourselves in our dominant center supported by the middle center so that we can bring up thinking. So here's an example. As a two, I walk into a room and I know what people are feeling. So as I start to move towards somebody, because I want to do something about feelings, I've learned to ask myself three questions. And the questions are, why am I moving toward this person? What, if anything, do I have to get in return? And does the other person want my help? Mm-hmm. Now that then helps me think yeah. about what I'm about to do. And then my fourth question has become, if I say yes to this, what does that mean? I'm saying no to. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I, I couldn't just walk out into the world one day and be balanced in thinking, feeling and doing. Right. And I had a difficult time accepting that I was thinking repressed. So I had to, kind of figure out what my method was going to be mm-hmm. for bringing up thinking. And you perfectly did it when you were talking about walking into a room and thinking about whether or not it's yours to do and whether or not it needs to be done now and whether or not it's germane to what is about to happen. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's easier. Oh, no. And I mean, yeah, it, I think also for me as a one, and this is related to the thinking um, you, one of the things you often say is that, you know, you're a one, if you've got this really loud inner critic. And I thought, gosh, I really think I'm a one, but I don't know about this inner critic business. 
And essentially, it was just so familiar <laughs> that there was, right. I mean, truly, I didn't know that those, that was what that was. I mean, it took me a long time to even get there, much less to say, okay, I've got to learn how to manage this and silence her <laughs> um, and yeah. and do some thinking around that. So I think that's, I mean, I guess for anyone who decides to explore this, um, knowing that we probably have some presuppositions about what feeling, thinking, and doing mean, and that actually trusting essentially the Enneagram wisdom around this might get us to a place, it might get us to a place where we realize actually this is not my number, but it also might get us to a place in my case of being like, oh no, this is true. And this aspect of myself thinking that I've always thought was really defined me is actually a place where I need to do some work in order to be more balanced in my life. So I'm, uh, yeah, that, that all rings very true to me. I'm curious, this is another, something you wrote in a chapter about Enneagram twos, but I think it might apply outside of that. So this is a um, quote uh, from the book. You say, your head will lie to you and your heart will lie to you, but your body will not. Learn to pay attention to what it tells you. So my first question is just, is this true for all of us, for all numbers? Yes. Yes. And then second, what does that mean to learn to pay attention to what our bodies are telling us in knowing that our heads and our hearts might lie? I think there are so many ways of knowing that we dismissive of. So if we have a semi-mystical experience, you know, if um, I just talked to somebody yesterday whose grandmother died and uh, he, she has talked to him Mm. since she died. And I don't have any trouble believing that, but people do have trouble with that. And I, I think we have limited our understanding about ways of knowing to it all is head knowledge Mm -hmm. and ways of feeling are, it's all what you feel. Mm -hmm. And if you're busy doing, then you're disconnected from both of those. And there's this disconnect with our bodies Mm -hmm. that we are going to have to get back to. So a a number that intuitively is the best at reading the world, I think, intuitively Mm -hmm. with their bodies is eights. Mm -hmm. Our oldest daughter, who's now 43, but I've known the Enneagram for a long time. And for Many listeners may not know that my husband is a former Catholic priest and I um, was a single mom with three kids and he and I married and he became a Methodist minister. And in our first Methodist church, she was in the third grade, I believe, second or third. And uh, first Sunday, we walked in, sat down, uh, children and me, and uh she said, Mom, you see that lady down there in the red coat? And I said, yeah. And she said, you can't trust her. Hmm. She's not a good person. And I said, well, Joey, we don't know her. And they brought dinner to the parsonage when we moved in. And she seems pretty nice. And this little bitty girl looked at me and said, do what you want. <laughs> and that woman was a snake in the grass. Hmm. And I'm telling you, Joey doesn't ever miss it. She just doesn't miss it. Yeah. And she reads it all in her gut. Eight, nines, and ones have an intuitive way of 
connecting with the world. Mm -hmm. So that is actually pretty easy for you if you connect to your body. But you, you have to connect and understand to differentiate after that. So, for example, if we talked about eights, nines, and ones connecting to your gut because you're in the intuitive gut triad, mm-hmm. Joey automatically reads who you can't trust. She and Billy, her husband, who's a nine, were in the Target parking lot uh, one day as school started. They got the boys in the car with them. And they're in the parking lot and it's wide parking lot and it's crowded. And one car is coming toward them and one car is in front of them. And those two cars decide to go for the same parking place. Mm. And I mean, they're serious about it. (laughs) And Joey grabbed her belly and she looked over and Billy was holding his too. And she said, do you feel that? And he said, yes. And she said, isn't it great? As an eight, she said, isn't it great? And as a nine, he said, no. Like I'm nauseous. Right. You would feel it in your body as a one mm-hmm. and know which car got there first and who should get the parking place. Right. But when we don't listen to our bodies, we miss that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying, heart people need to learn to listen to their bodies because your heart will tell you stories about people and about your relationship with people that are not true, Mm. both on the good side and on the bad side. Mm. And head people trust thinking way too much. They manage their fear using their heads. And you you can't use one center to manage any challenge. Mm -hmm. You have to learn to use all three. And do you think as far as the... um kind of listening to your body, you're giving some examples that are very visceral and immediate and almost subconscious, Mm -hmm. right? Like holding Mm -hmm. your belly and not even noticing you're doing that. But are there um, any practices or like deliberate steps that people could take in order to do that more if they're not instinctively or even if they're not noticing that they're doing it instinctively? Yeah. So, you know, I I teach everything by telling stories. So here comes another one. (laughs) We'll take it. I um, was an athlete. I I started out as a high school basketball coach and then college basketball coach. I'm I'm pretty strong and well put together and I'm old now and I've lost a lot of that. But I uh, started having trouble with my back, a lot of trouble. Now, remember, I'm a two on the Enneagram. So I read feelings and then I try to do something about feelings. Mm -hmm. But the feelings that I read are never my own. Mm -hmm always somebody else's. I go to a, I live in Dallas. We've got really good docs to choose from. And I go to a top notch back doctor, orthopedic guy who said, how long have you been carrying the weight of the world on your back? And I had to have major back surgery Mm. because I was carrying everything that I was feeling and trying to do something about without ever thinking about whether or not it was mine to do. Right. And so I think that, and some Enneagram authors have written about it, that there are different parts of your body that respond to being overused mm-hmm. and underused and not being used well. Right. And I'm really uh, not good at it, but I'm beginning to, 
really encourage people to do yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a subscription. uh, Oh, you know, I don't know all the. (laughs) The technical terms. Yeah. We can put it in the show notes, whatever it is. We'll ask Joel. Oh, yeah. Well, we have a subscription service and it's called The Table. Okay. And we're bringing in different people who will teach different things Mm -hmm. that we think help with Enneagram work. So we have a good friend who lives in Minneapolis. Her name's Courtney Perry. And she, after doing a three-year apprentice program with me, she started Yenneagram. Mm. And that's yoga and the Enneagram Mm. connecting. And she's working with yoga and head, heart, and gut, which all fits, right? I think there are ways that we can live more holistic lives far beyond what I'm talking about is a journey toward wholeness, but I don't see a path forward unless we learn to balance head, heart, and gut thinking, feeling, and doing. I don't see a way forward that is going to be healthy unless we find some balance in all that we're doing. And we are just an imbalanced society. Amen to that. Um, And it's so we don't need to go into all this, but I will just add to um, this conversation. You had your back issues when I was in high school, knowing nothing about the Enneagram that came much, much later. But um, my stomach was paralyzed, literally, (laughs) like hospitalized because my gut could not handle um, the world. And it was there was no you know, discernible physical cause. So right. just, That's it. just to underscore your point that our bodies convey a lot of information if we are willing to do the emotional and spiritual work to make those connections and trust that they are wise uh, tellers of truth to us. Yeah. And I think I, I, I just have to go back to it again and say, you can't change what you can't name. Mm-hmm. And the reason I love the Enneagram so much is because it names the things you already know, Mm. but you have not been able to articulate Mm -hmm. about yourself. Mm -hmm. And once you can articulate them, you can do something about it. Honestly, I I thought in my helping everybody, I was just being Jesus-like. Like, Like, I thought I am being so Christ-like. And I was so not. Mm. And learning how I think that's true, especially for many women um, in Christian circles, but uh, that sense of what does it mean to have, I mean, the language of healthy boundaries, but also I think the place where the Enneagram comes in and is a little more, um, I don't know, nuanced maybe than that is understanding, as you've been talking about, that the, the way we see the world and what our instinctive reactions are going to be and how to balance that. Um, not by dismissing that instinctive reaction, but by putting Mm -hmm. it into balance with some of these other things. I have one other question just specifically on these different ways of approaching the world and then a couple more broad questions at the end. Um, And that is this idea of orientation to time. So you also write about and speak about how these different stances uh, um, are oriented towards time differently. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. And then I have a specific question about being a one in terms of orientation to time, but you can fill people in on what I'm even talking about here. Okay. Um, Ones, twos, and sixes make up the dependent stance and their orientation to time is the present moment. 
And that means that whatever happens right in front of us determines what we do right now. We can have a planner and we can have the newest planner and we can do all of the extra skills that go with the planner. (laughs) And if somebody standing in front of us needs something, the plan we had for our day Mm -hmm. is out the window. Mm -hmm. We all three have terrible boundaries Mm. and we uh, tend to believe that we're responsible for what's happening in real time. Mm. Fours, fives, and nines. And and a way to talk about that is that we are tethered to the present moment. Mm -hmm. Fours, fives, and nines, orientation of time is the past. And they're tethered to the past. Morgan Harper Nichols was on my podcast yesterday. And she's a five on the Enneagram. Very creative. She has a big four wing. And uh, she was talking about in her recent work, that she has been quarantined with all of us, but she has memories of nature that are as real now as they were when she experienced them. So she told a story about a waterfall that she had been thinking about and writing about and wanting to do some art around. And it's like she saw the waterfall yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that's because she gave herself to it then and she has brought it with her because she's tethered to the past. Hmm. My husband, Joe's a nine. Uh, He went away to high school seminary at 14, but he can tell you where they ate on that trip Mm -hmm. from Houston to Missouri. Hmm. And he knows what year they went to New York to see his grandmother. And he knows where they stopped on the way because his orientation of time is the past. Hmm. And so living in the past uh, means that you're free from some of the things that are happening right now Hmm. in your way of being in the world, but actually you're not, but that's what contributes to the fact that you're doing repressed, Mm -hmm. right? We're dealing with whatever's right in front of us, which is what contributes to the fact that we're thinking repressed. We're not thinking about whether or not it's ours to do or what else we have to do. Just give up everything and do that. Yes. Three, sevens, and eights, uh, orientation of time is the future. Mm -hmm. Well, there aren't feeling matters in the future. Hmm. Like you can't feel the future. It's not here. Feeling repressed people are thinking and doing or doing and thinking because they're way out there planning and preparing for what's going to go right and what might go wrong and what they're going to do if it does. And so it's a trick for us to bring together thinking, feeling, and doing. And it's a trick for us for reasons that I think have to do with orientation to time to bring up all three to the point that we are also capable of having some equanimity in a full range of responding to life with all three. It's really hard to do, I think. So, you know, I'm 70 and uh, Joe and I have a little altar here at home. And I love the work of David White, Mm -hmm. W-H-Y-T-E. I I just really love his work. And he has a small book that the name of it is Consolations. It's Mm -hmm. not very big. And it is 
was on our altar. I had to put it away for a while. I just had to have a break. But I was flipping through and every day is a word. And then it's just a challenge. You know, it's just a, it's a, this is what this might really mean. Hmm. And I had read some words that were all really getting to me. And I kind of flipped around and I saw maturity and I thought, well, I've got that one. I need an easy day today. So I'm going to read that. Okay. And he said that he believes maturity in a totally non-Enneagram context, that he believes maturity is being able to hold the past and the present and the future all at the same time. Mm. And that was all the affirmation I needed to know that that was work that I needed to keep talking about Mm -hmm. that we need to do because it does seem that maturity requires all three. Yeah. And that, I mean, your answer answers my specific to being a one question, which was about, but why do I like planning so much? Um, But Mm -hmm. that sense of, yes, I will drop anything for the person who needs me right at this moment, even though I'm a great planner. Um, And so I feel like I'm living in the future, but you're right that I'm tethered to the present in a way that the, you know, my husband, who's a three is not at all. Um, And that's, that's really, um, really helpful. I'm curious, and I think this might um, speak a little bit to what you were just saying about David White. Uh, There's a line in your book that I like underlined, starred, and, you know, on both sides of the margins. And I talked to friends about when I first read it. Um, And so here's what you wrote. We have spent far too much time growing our personalities and not nearly enough time growing our souls. So first of all, I love that sentence and it rings very true to me. But I would also love to just hone in a little bit on the difference between our souls and our personalities and the ways in which we can consciously grow our souls, which perhaps you've already been um, talking about. I'm also just wondering whether there are aspects of self-help that only grow our personalities. Like, are there things that we're doing that are really just growing our personalities? So you can take that however you want, but those are some of my thoughts that that sentence brought up for me. All right. Well, first, I'm going to compliment you because it's obvious that you did a lot of thinking to prepare for this podcast because you are asking some really good questions. Oh, thank you. I'm having a really good time. I, I am too. I'm so glad. <laughs> All right. So um, it was a shock to me. I grew up in the church and uh, I've been in the church all my life. And it was a big shock to me to find out maybe in my thirties that I could grow my soul. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought my soul was done mm. and that I could harm it. Mm. You know, I could do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a, the Methodist church where there's not a lot of, you know, you're going to hell and all that. We, yeah. we kind of don't do that. Um, <clears throat> and I thought, well, I, like, what's that about? And then I started reading Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. And there's all this true self, false self, big self, big S self, little S self, you know, all all of that. And that all fed into what is soul. And then I heard somebody say that your essence, that your soul is essence. Mm -hmm. And that your essence is who you were before you did anything wrong and before you did anything right. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we could grow up that vulnerable and that exposed Mm -hmm. 
one just immediately knows that that can't happen. Mm -hmm. You have to have some protection to grow up. Mm -hmm. And some of us, I, for one, got to grow up in a really safe container and others of us did not. And you make your way in the world by adding on personality. So um, we have nine grandchildren and our children and grandchildren all live here in the Dallas area. So we're holding those babies when they're less than an hour old. They have a personality then. They're just essence. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you try to get a baby to smile at you when they're not smiling, mm-hmm. as soon as you tell a crying baby to be quiet, as soon as you tell a toddler to be still because you don't feel good, mm-hmm. as soon as you, then in order for us as we grow up to uh, feel like we're safe, We add layer upon layer upon layer of personality to connect us to our caregivers so that we feel safe. Mm -hmm. And after you've added a lot of layers of personality and you get to midlife, you're tired. So let me give you an example. In Enneagram wisdom, what we learn is that the worst part of you is also the best part of you. So we can't do this Western world thing of getting rid of whatever part of ourselves that we don't like. That's not an option. Our only option is to recognize that, at least in Enneagram wisdom, it shows you what's wrong, but it shows you how you already have what you need to make it right inside of you. You have all of the natural resources you need. And by the way, they are thinking, feeling, and doing. Hmm. And with those natural resources, you can be okay. You can take care of yourself for the most part. So in midlife, uh, we had a couple of foster kids and our four kids, and we've got kids everywhere and Joe's in ministry. And I can't keep helping everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm tired. And I, I have my own to do. And I have to learn where to say no. And I don't know who I am, though if I'm not generous and giving and helping and trying to, you know, do all the, all the, all the, mm-hmm. right. And <clears throat> what begins to happen when we approach life from a more balanced place in thinking, feeling, and doing, what begins to happen then is personality. We allow it to fall away, but you can't make it go away. Hmm. You can't, clench your fists and grit your teeth and say, I'm not going to continue to need this part of my world to be perfectly ordered. That's not going to work for you as a one. I can't say I'm not going to help. I'm just not going to do it. It doesn't work. But by using all three centers, you can kind of find your way on a new path and then parts of your personality that you just don't need anymore that you needed as a child, Mm -hmm. but you don't need now can start to fall away. Mm -hmm. And then you are a healthier person living a more holistic life, doing more of what's yours to do. You have shared that you're familiar with my work. And so you probably know that the question I ask myself every day is what is mine to do? Mm -hmm. And that grew out of me thinking, Everything that happened in front of me was mine to do. Right. And that's just not true. Right. 
It's a good question for me to be asking myself every day too, probably for all, all of us, many of us, I yes. don't know. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, it'll, and it's interesting though to even think about that because for some of us, I think you and me included, it will be usually, what do I need to say no to? Right. Whereas there are other numbers where the instinct is the opposite and it's what That's is mine right. to do? What are those things I need to say yes to? So again, similar questions, but different ways of seeing thinking, doing, and feeling. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a, just that alone tells us so much of the diversity, even though there's so many of the same um, challenges we face, but just in different ways. So as we come to a close, oh, did you want to say something? I don't want to. Well, I just want to say one more thing. You know, if you think about aggressive numbers, three, sevens, and eights, then what they have to ask is, what do I need to not insert myself into? Hmm. You know, you and I in the dependent stance yeah. wait for a stimulus that's in front of us. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty. But three, sevens, and eights see themselves as the leaders in the room when they walk in the room. Right. So the question for them becomes things like this. Here's a teaching I have, particularly for eights, but for all three of those numbers. You can't lead a group that you haven't joined. They're not going to follow you. Right. So... Lots of times, aggressive numbers think faster than the rest of us do. Not more correctly necessarily, but faster. Mm -hmm. And they end up taking over intuitively. Mm -hmm. So part of their work is they got to walk in, find out what's happening first Mm -hmm. before they rise up and say, da-da-da-da, I'm here to save the day. Right. Right? Because that's their natural intuition. Thank you for that and for all of those, yep. all of this. But I'm curious, I have one final question for you, which is just as we think about this idea of wholeness and healing, uh, I am curious, just in broad terms, ways in which the Enneagram contributes not just to our personal healing, I think we've spoken mm-hmm. somewhat to that, but also to the work of healing in the broader sense of our social certainly family relationships and social relationships, but really our society more broadly. How does the Enneagram contribute to healing? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say something, but I don't, I don't want to get any more specific than what I say. Okay. Because it's dangerous territory, but it's important. We're in a time right now where we are divided over, Many things. Yeah. Personal health, being vaccinated or not, mm-hmm. wearing masks or not. And not all of it for sure, but I think 60 to 70% of the people who are lined up on either side, in some ways, it has to do with their Enneagram number, because that's how they see the world. Mm. And I'm on one side of that and I am not compassionate enough Mm -hmm. toward the other side. Mm -hmm. And I know the Enneagram as well as anybody does. So there's no magic here, right? Even if you understand Mm -hmm. that people see differently, and even if you're willing to embrace that, that has its limits too. Sure. And, you know, I've been asked on with the other two books and um, I'm 
willing to answer it and grateful that you didn't ask. But the question is, uh, I'm often asked, well, what's dangerous about the Enneagram? Mm. And my only answer is it's dangerous to take it to be more than it is. Mm. It's one really great spiritual wisdom tool. Mm. And it's actually much better if you use it with others. Mm -hmm. It's better if you have a contemplative practice and you know the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. It's better if you have a spiritual practice of baking bread or gardening or that something that connects you to God. Mm -hmm. It's better if you have that with the Enneagram because it too can become exclusive and we're in the know and you're not. And, you know, there's not a thing you can say about the Enneagram using numbers that you can't say without using numbers. Right. You know, you don't have to say I'm a one on the Enneagram. You can say, here's what I'm learning about myself. Right. And um, I don't know what the question is anymore. Healing, social healing. Okay. Thank you. So I think, um, recognizing that other people are in the same room and they see the same thing that you see, but they don't. Right. They see it differently. And they don't process it the same way that you process it. See, that's the support center. Mm -hmm. You take in information with your dominant center. You process it with your dominant center and your support center and your repressed centers left out of the whole thing. Right. And so, to assume that we're all having the same experience in a room, in a family, in a small group, in a women's group, in a, we're just not. And to make room for difference may be a step toward making room for diversity. Mm -hmm. And it's for sure a step toward us living more compassionate lives as we try to live together in one city, town, group, school, church. And all gifts are necessary. I had uh, lunch with a head of an organization that I'm on the board of directors for today. And they're new to the Enneagram. And I'm explaining why we need these numbers on the board of directors and these numbers on the advisory board. Mm. And it's because they bring the gifts to that, that we need. Right. And I happen to be on the board of directors, but I'm, you know, if there were a lot of me, we wouldn't get much done. Right. Because frankly, to run an organization this big, you need a lot of people who are feeling repressed, (laughs) even though they're working on bringing up their feelings. Right. Right. Yes. Balance is better, but you can't run a business with feeling dominant people. You, you just can't right. successfully. Right. I'm also just one thing you're making me think about. I did had an exercise. I'm in an um, ordination process within my own denomination and was in mm-hmm. a class about it. And one of the exercises they had us do was to read a passage from the Bible and ask the question, how would I preach this? to different Enneagram numbers. Uh And it was a really interesting exercise in thinking about the different ways that people see and how instinctively I am going to be 
probably actually um, either preaching to some triad of the Enneagram that I relate to or just to me, (laughs) but nevertheless, to actually think about I know something about how different people see the world and let's let's try that on, not in terms of pretending that's how I see it, but acknowledging that what they bring into this room, into this conversation, into this listening experience. I was also thinking I teach Bible study a lot more than I preach. And so needing to provide a space for Lectio Divina where we are sitting and reflecting and sitting in silence and contemplative practice and not just let me give you the right information about what's going on here, Mm -hmm. uh, which is my go-to, but oh my gosh, how blessed am I when we actually just sit and listen and I hear from other people, not from scholars, but from what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. So I think there's also just, um, there's the compassion that can come in understanding that other people see the world differently. But then there's also that beautiful, if I can be receptive and see that as a gift, as you just said, then I can both receive the gifts that I have to offer and not be shy about offering them, Mm -hmm. but recognize that there's a lot I can't offer. And I never will be able to, which is why I really need these other people to be at the table. Um, And that just when you were talking about the board of directors made me think of that as well, that we have to be careful not to have all the same people at the table and to also recognize the different gifts that we all bring and the ones that we don't bring. Yeah, you know, um, I have have three responses to that. And one is that uh, Sean Palmer is uh, has a book with IVP that I was honored to write the foreword for. And he's talking about how to communicate to all the numbers Mm. in that book. I think the the exact title is Speaking by the Numbers, okay, I think. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but it's good. So there's that. The the Another thing I wanted to tell you is that um, I have a good friend who's an eight, a male eight, mm-hmm. very aggressive pastor. And years ago, he kind of got in trouble for being himself. Hmm. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter what you have to say if people can't hear you. Hmm. It doesn't matter. And we don't all hear the way you do. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to, you got to get that figured out. If you want to communicate well to all of us. And in terms of preaching, um, I've said to my husband for years, you're never going to preach to all nine numbers and make them happy. Right. So whatever they tell you at the door as they're leaving church, you can't take it very seriously on either side. I do think that there are uh, gospel stories for every Enneagram number. Mm. And uh, I'll tell you quickly the one that gets me the most. Yeah. So uh, my husband's an electionary, and that means that every three years, the same readings again right. again like gives you a chance to try to get it. (laughs) And um, I'm pretty sure that Martha was a two on the Enneagram of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And, um, you know, Jesus is coming to their house to dinner and um, Martha is uh, in the kitchen. uh, And for those who are biblical scholars, just take a deep breath because this is my (laughs) way of telling the story. But um, Martha's, cooking in the kitchen it's hot and 
she's hot and she's uh, doing all the work to prepare to feed Jesus. And Mary's just in the other room with Jesus. They're just chatting it up and having a little talk. And as any two would, Martha goes in to tattle on Mary. And she says to Jesus, like, I'm in here doing all this work for you. Are you just going to let Mary sit here and talk to you and not help me? And Jesus says, well, you know, Martha, Mary has chosen the better part. So as a two who's heard that every three years for a long time, what I've learned is this. The fact that I think I'm serving God doesn't always mean that I'm serving God. Lots of times as a two, I'm serving me. And you're not going to ever hear that in a Bible study from an aggressive Enneagram number. Because they don't relate to Martha. And so to get the whole story, you have to listen to the people in the room. Mm -hmm. Each of them hearing from their perspective. Whether it's Bible study or a board meeting or a PTO meeting or whatever. I love that. Well, I could ask you questions for the next three hours, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say thank you so much for sharing this wisdom with us. And I will really encourage anyone who's listening here to make sure they check out your books and your teaching, your audio teaching, your podcast, all of what you are offering um, from your gifts into the world. Thank you for that. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you. I hope our paths cross somewhere. Me too. I would love Yeah. Post-COVID, I'll give you a big hug. Sounds great. (laughs) Okay, let's do that. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. Again, in the show notes, you can find out more about Suzanne's work and her new book and teaching and the giveaway that we get to do today. I will mention again that The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation releases today, and we are giving away a copy. Uh, You also can check out my Instagram page at Becker to find out more details. And of course, I always am hopeful that you will share this episode, subscribe to this podcast, give it a rating or review wherever you find your podcasts, and that way even more people can benefit from these conversations. I'm also really grateful to Jake Hansen, my editor here, to Amber Beery, my social media coordinator. They both support this show and make it happen, and I'm really grateful for them. Finally, as you go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.